listeners. If you wish to stay up to date with the latest episodes or any news you might have missed, please follow us on our Twitter and Instagram or join our Facebook page. If you'd like to join in or start some discussions with other agents, we have a Discord server available to everyone. We also have our episodes up on YouTube, so please consider subscribing and share with your friends. Thank you for your time. Now let's get into this week's case file. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Files Obscura. Today, I'm your host, Aaron, and I'm joined by my co-host, Vlad. How you doing, Vlad? I'm doing pretty good so far. That's good to hear. So today, I believe, is our 30th episode, and I got a fun one for us. I had this one stored for a few weeks because I wasn't too sure I wanted to do this episode justice because I just kept finding more facts about it that just made me want to dig into it more and just see what else is out there, you know, because sometimes there's that loose thread that everybody holds on to and it winds up not even being supported. You know, with a lot of stuff that we find in UFO cases, if you can find that fact that debunks it, there's no reason to keep going with it. But... With this particular case, it just kept leading down to a bigger rabbit hole with, you know, something that even I couldn't. I'm not the U.S. Army with boundless resources, but even the U.S. Army and Air Force couldn't even debunk these cases. So we're going to cover two UFO encounters of the third kind. We're going to be covering the Lonnie Zamora incident and the Maurice Mass incident in Valencel, France. Huh. Are uh, both of these cases connected by any chance? Yes, actually, quite a bit. And when we get into the story, I'll start to tell you exactly how they're connected. All right, interesting. So as always, it's tradition here that we play two truths and a lie. You know, and I think think this time I got enough reasonable information to pull from that even my lie, had I not researched the truth, I would believe. Yeah. Well, with UFOs, it's always kind of out there. Yeah, of course. Of course. But with that being said, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So the first statement goes as follows. The Lonnie Zamora encounter is often cited as the most credible tale to a UFO sighting to date. To expand on that a little bit, you know, there's a bunch of people who claim to have sightings, but there are people who never see it. Or there's contradictory evidence, or there's an explanation by the U.S. government or something, even if we don't want to believe it. But with this case, there's none of that. There, there's, not, there's nothing out there that debunks it that we know of so far. Okay, interesting. Yeah, um, I would believe it. I've never heard of this case, to be honest. I, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. So, so far, I believe it. Okay. So, with that being said, let's go on to our second statement. The Lonnie Zamora and Maurice Mass, uh, both of these guys, would claim to witness nearly identical sightings of the same shit and beings that they witnessed in their in their encounters. That's interesting because our last UFO episode uh, had two people who were describing two very different things. Yes. Right. So we, we here we have well, if this is true, we have a situation where uh, two people were describing the exact same thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, like, let's go back to our very first episode. You know, covering the Hawkinsville Goblins. You have three different sets of families who were. And other people who were saying various details that lined up more or less with the original story that the the Sutton family w- was claiming to see at their family farm. So, who knows? Who knows, yeah. In- indecisive about that. Okay. <laughs> then on to our third statement. Maurice Mass, whenever he was originally going out and telling of his encounter, all of his friends and family, they saw him as a crazy guy. They, they of course, didn't believe that he just witnessed an encounter until the, the French officials came and they could not debunk the case. 
they couldn't find any evidence to, to support a contradictory observation. Okay, so you put me in a tricky situation. Exactly. Because it kind of feels like these three facts kind of line up exactly. with one another. And that's what's really weird about it, because which one is false when they all seem to support so each other? So plausible. Exactly. That's why I told you, like, right. I think I would have fallen for this had I not researched this story. Okay, okay. So, uh, let's start off from the beginning. This is the most believable? Yes. The Lonnie Zamora encounter specifically is often cited as the most credible tale of an encounter of the third kind. You know, seeing the whole ships and beings and everything. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then the second one is that there's hardly any, um, no information that really, like, debunks. No, no. The second one was that the Lonnie Zamora encounter and the Maurice Mass encounter... Both of these guys would claim to witness nearly the exact same sighting. The same ship, the same beings, everything. You know what? That one's a lie. You think that one's a lie? I think that one's a lie. You want to bet money on that? No. <laughs> I think that one's a lie. No, I'm, I'm, I'm laying with you. <laughs> I uh, wouldn't bet money on it, but I, I believe that's the lie. Yes. So just for clarity's sake, then let's go with the third one one more time. That Mass was originally seen as a crazy man until, you know, officials were unable to debunk his claims. So you think that one's true? I think that was true. Okay, you think the second one's a lie and the first one's true? Yes. They're going with number two. Yes. All right. I'm locking you in. Go ahead. All right. Let's get into the episode. So, as always, I like to look into a bit. And, you know, around this time, we're looking mid-60s, right? So, we're dealing with Project Blue Book at the time. We're dealing just shortly, you know, a few years after the Roswell encounter. We're, we're dealing with the rise and height of alien paranoia. So, I looked at some of the U.S. officials that were on this case, and one name always stuck out, you know, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. J. Allen Hynek was the scientific consultant for Project Blue Book who created the Close Encounters scale as we understand it today. And as it breaks down, the Close Encounter of the first kind was a witness who observed a UFO. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they actually saw an alien craft, because UFO just means unidentified flying objects. So these weren't often taken with a lot of, you know, credibility and often, you know, dismissed, you know, almost upon first viewing, unless you have a case where, like, hundreds of people claim to see the same weird phenomenon. Mm -hmm. The close encounters of the second kind is the UFO interacts in some way with its surroundings. So, like, say we had an alien ship that would come down and land. If you could see where the landing pads were, or if, like, they, there's enough stories out there where these UFOs would be ripping hot with a jet engine of some kind, if you could see burn marks somewhere, or you can find chemical traces or radiation, this would all fall under an encounter of the second kind. But, like, with today's episode... We're going to be covering a close encounter of a third kind, which is classified as witnesses not only seeing a UFO, but seeing beings, like individual beings, who are either coming from the UFO or being witnessed inside the UFO, something like that, hmm. and therefore still cannot be identified. So, Hop, uh, the, the Hopkinsville. Hopkinsville goblin incident would be considered a third kind. Right? Yes, a close encounter of the third kind. Because not only did they witness, you know, what seemed like a UFO that came out uh, and crashed somewhere in the, in the trees, but they also did physically encounter these alien-like goblin creatures. All right, and I guess, uh, what was the last one we did? Um... Uh, Talking about the Rendlesham Force? Rendlesham. Yeah, with the U.S. and U.K. Uh, military officials who so saw I, it. I believe that one would fall under closing counter of the uh, second kind? 
Uh, I'm gonna be honest, my memory's still a little sketchy as of this moment recording, um, but I don't believe that they found necessarily any incidents that reflected a, a change in the environment physically. I believe gotcha. all they did was witness a bunch of lights, the, the ship going across the sky, but that was it. First kind. Alright. <laughs> so yeah, first kind incident. Yeah. Now, of course, there is what we understand now today, a close encounter of the fourth kind, which is categorized as being fully abducted. Mm. So, and, you know, you want a, a tale to reference, you know, you can look at the Pascagoula incident, you can look at Betty and Barney Hill. These are two very famous cases that both have abduction being an element of this encounter. The difference is, real quick, Betty and Barney Hill, as far as I remember, they didn't really need too much, like, repressed memory, you know, mm. hypnosis, whereas the Pascagoula incident, these things were coming back in, like, dreams and stuff like that, um, and... You know, they, they deserve episodes for the future. We may or may not cover them just because of their uh, huge knowledgeability with the public. But they are important things to cite. You know, so let's take a look at the Lonnie Zamora incident. The much more famous and uh, much more detail-rich part of the episode, the encounter. The Lonnie Zamora incident was sometimes regarded as, you know, the best documented and or investigated UFO sighting. The case had numerous other witnesses and strong physical evidence to support their claims, uh, stuff we'll get into a little bit later. The case had attracted the attention of not only law enforcement, but civilian UFO groups and the U.S. Army and Air Force. Wow. Now, keep in mind, I'm going to get into it more specifically later, this happened in New Mexico during the 60s, during the rise of the Cold War. <laughs> so keep all that in mind as we go through the story. Yeah. So... Lonnie was born on September 7th, 1933, and he had died November 2nd, 2009, dying at 76 years of age. But as far as his personal life or any of his work or anything that he did, it's damn near impossible to find anything. So I'm not going to be including it in today's episode. Because anytime you look up Lonnie Zamora, this case is the only thing that pops up. We tried. Even even Peter, as great of a researcher as he had, he, he tried and he couldn't find any, anything. Wow, this yeah. is very hidden. Uh, it's just, I assume, long story short, he just prided his, you know, privacy, which is fine. Yeah. You know, nothing wrong with that. But it does kind of leave a, a blank slate to what the man's like, to kind of judge him by his character. But with that being said, we will have uh, people of the time that, that talked a little bit more about him, that speak, that, and they will speak very highly of him. So... The incident in question. April 24th, 1964, at around 5.45 p.m., Lonnie Zamora was pursuing a speeding car alone due south of the Socorro, New Mexico desert. With his windows down, he enjoyed nice weather, the sun, and scattered clouds. Wasn't really a lot going on. Then at some point during the chase, quote, he heard a roar and saw a flame in the sky to southwest some distance away possibly a half mile or a mile, unquote. I'll also like to say real quick, the way he wrote made it seem like it was a bunch of broken English. So when I quote him, it's not going to sound coherent, but I chalk that up to a lot of these reports being made very quickly after the incident. So what you're saying right now is exactly what was written down. Yes. Okay. What he wrote down in his reports and everything, this is, he, he's a cop, so he's writing his own reports too. But it's like, I chalk this up to just nerves and everything. He's petrified. He just, he's going to see something he doesn't know. So like any rational individual, he came up with possible answers. First, like a local dynamite shack might have blown up in the area. 
or, you know, as we'll discuss later, possibly even some testing going on, because this is New Mexico, mm-hmm. you know, just after World War II and the height of the Cold War and everything. Well, not just after, it's like 15 years. But still, you know, it's the height of the Cold War and everything, so you want to rationalize like he does. Zamora then instead decides to leave the chase and go investigate the possible explosion. Who knows, somebody could have got hurt, there could be a lot of property damage, it needs his attention. Yeah. The flame was long, narrow, and funnel-shaped, and it was bluish-orange by color. Sick. Yes. But I will also point this out because it's going to point out to a personal fact that I'm going to bring up. Or not a personal fact, but a personal uh, thought I had later on. He was wearing green-tinted sunglasses over his prescription glasses. The roar he heard was at first high-pitched and then lowered over a 10-second period. He thought the car, uh, the car he chased would have heard the roar, but couldn't have seen it. The object would have been behind the brow of a hill from its point of view. So it's, it's like, um, what, what, long story short, what he's trying to say, he's, he's assuming that the car he was chasing was just too far along, that his perspective would have been skewed, but Zamora was not from where he was at. So, again, if anybody's wondering why didn't this car he was chasing come see it, two things. A, he didn't see it. B, he's running from the cops. Yeah. Let's be real. Dude, I wouldn't stop for anything. I mean, I could could have seen, like, an angel manifest itself before my eyes. And if I was running from the cops, I'd still be running. Right? Like, look, even divine intervention is not going to stop you there. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, just to clarify his rationale there. So Zamora, he would struggle to get up the hill with his car taking three attempts uh, there hadn't been any more noise so far from what he last heard. For the next 10 to 15 seconds, he continued west, and then he finally noticed a shiny object, quote, to south about 150 to 200 yards, unquote. He first thought it was a, quote, overturned car up on, up on the radiator or the truck, unquote. The car had four leg-like extrusions. There were two people standing close to it, one eventually even seeing Zamora. At this point, he, you know, your mind's still wanting to rationalize what you're witnessing. But as we're going to describe, he's seeing the encounter. He is seeing their ship that he's, uh, quotes later saying, that is like a, an egg or an oval-like shape, which is very common amongst a lot of UFO believers. Very common. He's going to cite uh, descriptions of these aliens that are going to look very close to what we consider typically as the greys or something. You know, big heads, big eyes, small bodies. I think it's really funny. We basically know what UFOs look like and what aliens look like. Oh, we've and classified them. We've I, categorized we're basically, them. Basically, and it's hilarious because it's still the corniest shit ever. Cause, I mean, you really... it, it is. It is. But at the same time, and we'll, we'll definitely get more into the discussion when we're done with the episode. But it, it's, what if they're right? I know. Like, here's the thing. One day we're going to see an actual alien and it's going to look exactly like it came out straight out of a science fiction movie. And we're just going to be like... That's fake, obviously. Of course, like of course. what else? Like, there's no way he actually dresses like that. What's that? is that an antenna? No, like you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Like, we're not gonna believe it. But like I said, we'll we'll talk more about that because I, I have some funny thoughts about that. So yeah, like so far he's rationalizing. It's a car. These are people. They probably crashed something. Whatever. Even though he didn't hear a crash, he heard what I would assume by what I was reading is like a jet engine. So, a lot of these facts aren't lining up. Then again, I wasn't there to witness it. Mm. He even goes on to say that the shiny object was, quote, like aluminum, 
It was whitish against the Mesa background, but not chrome. And he specified not chrome for a reason. Hmm. Um, not a reason I was able to dig up, or Peter was able to really dig up specifically, but it did stick out to me. Wait, so what was it again? He was describing the, the, the color and the texture of, of the, the shit. It was metallic. It was like aluminum. Like aluminum, but not chrome. Not chrome. It okay. was whitish against the Mesa background. All right. I'm so not, I'm it was basically okay, looking right. like a metal egg. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It's a, okay, interesting. Chrome, aluminum, I'm trying to like... Yeah, you're trying to visualize it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get it. And, you know, of course, he says, and it was round-shaped, almost like the letter O. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's a little, very a little interesting. Yeah, very round. Very pod-shaped, if you will. Yeah, yeah. It was on its side uh, with a strange symbol, almost looking like an arrow pointed up. Zamora approached the crash site with the intent to help, still thinking that these are two people who crashed for some reason, uh, the two people he saw didn't seem particularly special in his opinion. They had no headwear and seemed uh, seemed human-shaped, but they could have been possibly small adults or large kids. This goes back to their you know their size and stature. Mm-hmm. But he's still over two football fields away. Uh, as Zamora was driving towards the scene, he radio dispatched that he would exit his car. He stopped, got out, dropping the radio, and he heard two or three like thumps. Uh, like closing doors, and barely had time to run around before the roar started again. It was loud, but this time the roar started low in pitch, growing up. A flame under the object began, and it was booming. The object started to rise uh, slowly with a blue flame that had an orange tail, Hmm. burning the ground. He could see the uh, the side of the object. He thought from the roar that it's, incre- that it's increasing in pitch that it could blow up. There was no dust from the flame either, which, of course, we do anything with a torch today. There's still going to be that push because of the difference in pressure. you got a, you know, a flame, which is technically, it's not quite plasma, but you, know, you can think of it as a super hot, super high-pressure gas. You know, it's pushing everything else out of the way. There's, you could see this example anywhere you go. You can watch videos of this online. But this one's not doing that. And there's going to be more interesting things about this flame later. Just the dust from the ground that was moving with the natural, you know, wind of the terrain. Looking at the object, he ran behind his car, bumping his leg on the rear fender, dropping his sunglasses. So these green-tinted sunglasses were dropped. He continued to run away from the object, which was still close to the ground. It was oval in shape, smooth, no windows or doors that could be seen. He could see red letters and insignia on the side now, which is a lot more visible to what he could see from afar. This is whenever he actually gave a description of what he saw. Because previously, what he was what, uh, what he was talking about, he didn't quite see it. I only wrote that in there as to remind myself, you know, what he had witnessed. And I'll show you a picture a little bit later. Okay. Um, exactly what it looked like. Uh, it may seem familiar to you when, whenever you see it like it did me. As he was still running, the object had risen to about 20 to 25 feet off the ground. He couldn't hear the roar anymore, so he ducked behind a small hill about 50 feet away from his car. He had planned to continue down the hill, but turned around towards the object, looked towards the ground, covering his face with his arms, and started going towards the object. He looked up, and the object was going away from him. It went in a straight line about 10 to 15 feet off the ground, and then just just barely missed an 8-foot-tall dynamite shack by approximately a yard. The object sped up, then rose up, and zoomed off, seemingly immediately across the country. Zamora went back to his car, 
picked up his glasses he had dropped and got in. He then radioed to Net Lopez, a radio operator, to look out the windows to see if he could see any object. Lopez asked what it was, and Zamora answered, quote, it looked like a balloon, unquote. If Lopez had looked out of his own window, which faced north, he could not have seen it. Zamora had not specified which window to look out of. That's important, because mm. Lopez never actually saw the object. But hearing, you know, Zamora freak out about it on the radio was still important to note. Yes. You know. All right. And, you know, him trying to get a quick response, he knows he wants somebody else to see this, even though he couldn't. Nobody, even if as a joke, nobody has that kind of level of forethought, in my opinion, to go that far. It's kind of a tricky situation to be in. It is, because it's one of those things, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah. You know, people are going to think you're crazy, people are going to think, you know, this is this is nonsense. But so far, Zamora is doing everything right that he can. Yeah. You know, even just as a police officer, he's doing everything right that he I can. I mean, simply writing everything everything down. Is... Oh, yeah. No, he, he like, he immediately, uh, as we'll discuss later, when, like, uh, police officers and the U.S. Air Force and Army Base and all these other people would come to investigate the site, you know, he would even ask them, like, please, give me an answer. Give me something. Let me know I'm not crazy. But like I said, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, after we're done with the actual encounter. Like I said, Zamora had not specified which window to look out of. Zamora himself watched the object fly away, fast but silent and without flame. He saw the object go over Box Canyon or Six Mile Canyon Mountain. It disappeared as it went over the mountain. No flame, no smoke, and no noise. Hmm. It was just quiet. You know, it's like watching a movie with on mute. You can see all the action, but you hear nothing. That's so creepy, though. Happen, you know, whenever that's happening in real life, just in person, I, yeah. I can only imagine. Oh, yeah. But we're not quite done. So, Zamora heard his colleague Sergeant Chavez call for him on the radio, asking for his location. When Chavez arrived, he asked Zamora what had happened. Zamora was sweating and pale white. Of course, he just witnessed something he can't explain. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and very reasonably, he thought his life was in danger, I would assume. Zamora asked Chavez to see what he saw, which was a burning bush. Ch I, it almost sounds biblical. I I, I, it sounds exactly <laughs> biblical. That's straight out of Exodus. I, I know, I know. But it's not quite the same. It's not speaking messages to him. Okay, right. You know, it's not speaking no words of wisdom. Gotcha. Chavez, you know, he would then go down to investigate and pointed out some tracks and other physical remains of the event. Within hours, the incident had reached the news. Many people had heard the police radio traffic, including a few reporters. You know, these reporters uh, from the Associated Press and the United Press International had come to Socorro within days of the incident. The UFO study group APRO was also on the scene within two days, as well as officers represented the United States Air Force's Project Blue Book. So everyone came out to see this. Much like how we remember hearing the traffic from the people that came to the the Sutton family home during the Hawkinsville goblin encounter. The difference is is this isn't out in the backwoods of Kentucky. This is around testing sites for nuclear facilities and, you know, deep projects, you know, Air Force projects for spy you know, spy planes and stuff like that. So they're gonna have to take this with a lot more, you know, not only credibility, but being more thorough. It's a lot. And besides just Mora, other witnesses had also come forward claiming to either, you know, see sightings within minutes of Zamora's or they would hear the same roar that he heard. A total of seven tourists, three people who lived locally that called the sheriff's office, 
immediately after the incident and an unknown person who called a TV station all claimed to be witnesses towards this event. Huh. Yeah. Hundreds within the south side of uh, Socorro had heard the roar as, as well, according to a member of the sheriff's office. Several sightings over the days had appeared as well as on the newspapers, including another landing site near La Madera from which the FBI made a report of. Soon after the incident, multiple police, like immediately after the incident, not days after, you know, kind of go back a little bit. All right, pretty close, pretty close. So soon after the incident, multiple policemen came to help. All of them noted the burning at the site, still hot clumps of burning grass and burned greasewood bushes. You know, some even noted that that there was few sand, you know, that you only see in extremely high temperatures, you know, stuff that's equivalent to like the atomic bomb or our jet propulsions that we use on our shuttles and rockets. Like, that's the type of temperatures we're looking at to fuse this. This doesn't just occur naturally. It's ridiculous. It is. Because you're right. That doesn't just like, occur naturally. It, that, it, it takes some, like, crazy firepower to make something like that happen. Yeah. Like, like, a little side fact. We invented a new rock when we created, you know, the nuclear bomb. Because <laughs> as we covered uh, in our Broken Arrow episode, one of the, the first bomb detonated, I believe, was called a uh, Gadget. When that detonated over the sands of the desert, I can't remember exactly which day, I believe it was New Mexico, the sand that fused at the bottom was was a rock you cannot find anywhere else around the world. I believe it's known as tritium. It gives off a a yellowish-green, almost glassy-like color. And and it only happened because of the, the fusion that occurred and because of the, you know, intense radiation that happened there. These rocks that we're seeing now, you know, in Socorro, are very reminiscent, but not quite the same because they don't they weren't made in you know in an atomic blast. Chavez, you know, he would go on to note that he had also at some point of the grass, you know, still smoldering, you know, as well as greasewood plants, things that don't naturally catch quickly. He would go on to report, you know, with some details that when he touched what was still smoking and burning, typically when you think of hot coals that are still smoking, they're gonna be hot. Yeah. These weren't. They were, they were cold. cold to the touch. Oh, shit. Dude, that happens in uh, Ward Worlds. You know, uh, he picks up the rock, right? Yeah. Right after aliens uh, land. He picks it up, and the guy next to him is like, what, is it hot? And he's like, no, it's cold. And I'm like, oh, is this what it's referencing? Is this... It probably is. That's kind of cool. All right, sorry. I, I just, I hear this, and I got reminded of that movie. So, I don't know. That, no. So I guess it's based on something that actually happened. Yeah, of course. I mean, when I mean, I mean, the world is dealing with aliens, you're going to want to reference actual aliens. Yeah. That's kind of cool, though. Yeah, and like, like I said, like with the, the reports that he would write and everything, uh, he would write stuff like, quote, when I arrived, greasewood br- uh, branches were still smoking, unquote. And, uh, quote, you know, they burned at the base by what seemed to be exhaust heat. You know, so it's like, it, it's stuff that he assumed only could happen, you know, if someone had started that fire, whether intentionally or unintentionally. It's just not something that just happened. There's all sorts of, like, physical evidence here. Yeah, there, there's a bunch of physical evidence. There's a bunch of eyewitness accounts. And in one of the most conspiracy-riddled places on the planet at its time. Yeah. So it's one of those things that you have to take it, you know, with a pound of salt at this point. But we're going to get into, you know, the military officials here in, in just a little bit. He and all the first responders noted that there were four irregularly shaped smoldering areas, four specifically, and these would coincide with the landing pads that Zamora claimed to see. Hmm. These these four concentrations are where 
not only they the pads landed, but where the fires were starting and where they're seeing most of the uh, the fused sands uh, that that uh, I mentioned earlier. These, like I said, were the areas that he saw smoke rising, but the grease fires, you know, they were still cold to the touch. A secret report from the Blue Books project director, Major Hector Quintanilla, something like that. I believe it's Quintilla. He reported to the CIA, and it reads as follows. There's no doubt that Lonnie Zamora saw an object which left quite an impression on him. There is also no question about Zamora's reliability. He is a serious police officer, a pillar of his church, and a man well-versed in recognizing airborne vehicles in the area. He is puzzled by what he saw, and frankly, so are we. This is the best documented case on record, and still we have been unable, in spite of thorough investigation, to find the vehicle or other stimulus that scares them more to the point of panic. You know, funny enough, that quote might actually be one of the most believable things ever, because the fact that somebody was like, hey, look, this guy's super respected, he's a police officer, the church loves him, like, this, it doesn't sound like he's the kind of person who would, like, come up with a hoax to... You have the then-project director of Project Blue Book telling the CIA directly, believe this guy. I know. like This guy's not crazy. He's not just smoking the dope out there. He saw something. Like, having him say this about this guy, that alone almost means more than some fucking cold rocks. Right? Like, 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 yes, you have all the visible evidence and everything. But you have the people who are supposed to debunk this and say, no matter what, you're wrong. No matter what you witness, that's not what happened. You have the guys who are supposed to be out there debunking this saying, no, like, we, he legit saw something. There's nothing we can throw at this that denies that fact. So you ha- it's one of those things like when faced with the truth, you're either going to be a denier or disbeliever, or as uncomfortable as it is for some people, you're going to have to accept the truth. This is one of those cases that, for me, you know, it's like, yes, I'm still hesitant to say exactly what alien species are out there. But for me, this, this says it. There are aliens, no matter what you like to think. So with me knowing that, of course, I'm going to sound crazy and loony sometimes when we cover other episodes yeah. in the future. But when you see this, it's one of those things that is just irrefutable. Oh, yeah. There's probably aliens out there. Like... I have, it's not the craziest thing to believe either, and, and especially with with stuff like this. I mean, come on, yeah, like it's just it's wild. We're gonna come back to Lonnie Zamora in a little bit, but I'm gonna take this all the way to France now. Okay, we're going to Valencia, France. It's 5:45 a.m., which I know is interesting because when we started with Lonnie Zamora, it was 5:45 p.m. a year prior. Oh well. Yeah, I know. I, I I didn't notice that at first when I was writing these facts down. What a cool thing. Yeah, just just a little bit. But uh yeah, well they say approximately 5:45 a.m. uh on July 1st, 1965. So roughly, roughly the same uh, time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, roughly the same time, but it's it's a year later, you know, and stuff like that. Gotcha. So we're going to a, a lavender farm. We're looking at Farmer Maurice Mass. He would leave his home to walk to his lavender fields to begin his morning work, as you do, you're a farmer. He stopped in the shade for his morning cigarette when he heard what he believed was a helicopter, a military helicopter specifically, making an unauthorized landing, roughly 100 yards or 92 meters away. Uh, he, he would then see what, what he claims was an egg-like craft with a small dome on top that stood on six legs. Ooh. Yeah, a l- little different, but not too much. 
Oh, it, what was the other one? It was four legs? Four legs. Yeah, okay, gotcha. All right. This site says six legs, but when I personally looked at the pictures and everything of the events, I really only saw like four big identifying markers, and some sites did cite four. This would be a new model. It's one of those things like these are the little bits of details that that add you know discrepancies. Yeah. But at the same time, as we're going to discuss later, I don't think it's one of those facts that really matters. Yeah. So I left it a six. It was approximately two and a half meters tall or eight feet tall, and uh, in front stood two figures. At first, Mass suspected that they were kids who had vandalized his crops the week prior. You know, because he had noted that there were, um, that there was a small patch of lavender fields that just weren't growing right, that there were, something was going on, and there's nothing he could really do about Gee, it. Gee, I wondered if, uh... Yeah, well, yeah. we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later, um, in our personal thoughts. Like I said, at first he suspected that they were kids, but the figures, upon closer inspection, were chalk white. I mean, paler than Barry Manilow white. <laughs> Alright, so they're pretty white. Yeah, with huge bald heads, large slanted eyes, and lipless mouths. Mm, creepy. And in an all-green one-piece suit. Now, real quick, to go back to what I was talking about earlier, with Lonnie Zamora and his green-tinted sunglasses. These, a lot of people cite that, you know, them these creatures not looking the same adds to that level of discrepancy that they did not see the same thing, and these are guys just claiming to see the same thing, or that Mass was just wanting to, you know, capitalize on something, even though, as we'll discuss later, Mass and Lonnie Zamora knew nothing of each other, and Mass knew nothing of the encounter. And, like, the, like one dude's, like, a police officer, the other one is a farmer, right? Just a la- he's just a lavender farmer for, for the perfume industry. Like, d- these people... They're obviously minding their own business, right? Now. Yes. Like just like the just just like the hillbilly family, you know. They don't have any interest in this. There's nothing for them to profit off it's, with yeah. this. They, and as we'll go into it, he actually has a more dramatic encounter than Zamora did, and that's kind of hard to say given where he was and the time of, of the, you know, the political climates and everything. Yeah. Um, but I just, I wanted to point that out as something to, to think on. As so, bright green suits, right? Yes. All well, right. not not bright green, but they were just, they were in a green one-piece suit. A green one-piece. You know, that, that was the, that was as detailed as I was able to find. They, they had appeared to be creatures with no neck. They stood only three feet tall. And, and you know, on, uh, it was also noted by Mass that these beings carried, you know, some kind of belt that had these pencil-like cylinders that they carried around them. So, as typical sci-fi fashion as you would think an alien wears. Yeah, this sounds like it's something either straight out of Star Trek or a pink guy sketch. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I... <laughs> I love Joji. So, of course, like any inquisitive human being, Mass began to approach concerned, and when he was about 20 yards away... One of the entities spotted him and grabbed their cylinder and pointed it at Mass, and from it projected a beam, and he fell to the ground, paralyzed immediately. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, some people even cited him uh, saying stuff like he felt like he was suffering a seizure at first. That, that intense. Yikes. He just, he just fell, same pose. I couldn't find you what pose specifically i imagine no, but i mean more like, or less standing up i mean i've seen people go through seizures before so yes I, I mean, and and then he just fell to the ground there's he couldn't move he, he there's nothing he could do then following this quote 
the strangers had such a calm and peaceful aura about them, unquote. He later said, quote, that I was not in the least bit uh, afraid, unquote. Again, this is translated from French, so it's not, it's not a perfect description of what he actually said. Uh, but like I said, yeah, Mass never felt afraid or believed that the entities held any negative opinions or were putting him in danger. He was able to hear some, like, chittering or grunting noises coming out of them as, I guess, they spoke. Yeah. But it's impossible for us to tell. Yeah. And when they were done, he then saw them enter their craft through a, quote, roller-blind type hatch. A lot of descriptions and, and, or, or pictures that I've seen drawn about this shows that it's it's a hatch that's kind of near the bottom, but almost has, like, a footpath that walks out. It's one of those things, it's like, it's, it's an artist drawing, so you can't really just go off of it. Mass didn't draw it himself, so. All right. As far as I know. And then he saw them enter the craft, and then they were looking back at him through the, the transparent dome that sat on top. You know, obviously the, this was their craft and everything. So uh, we have, so far, a very similar craft with similar looking beings Arguably witnessed at different ranges, Lonnie Zamora was over two football fields away at first, whereas Mass is, like, right up next to these guys. Yeah. So, then the craft, you know, when it would take off, it took off with a whistling loud noise and incredible speed. It was often cited as having a very terrible noise. So, I would, you know, of course, this is up for interpretation, but I interpret that as, you know, something very similar to the Lonnie Zamora case. You know, with the with the loud booming jet engine sounds, yeah. I would describe that as almost a terribly whistling noise. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, that's whenever whenever we we live by like an airport, so we hear that kind of sound we all the time. We live more. We live next to an airfield. Airfield. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you hear the we Air hear, Force's airfield. We, we hear see the jets all, all the time. And the the you know whenever it's very close up, it kind of sounds like a big old boom. You know, kind of whistly. Yeah. Yeah. It, exactly. So yeah, and it's just it's crazy. So then these guys take off at incredible speeds, like I said. Roughly 15, 20 minutes would pass before Mass was able to get back up, and he returned to Valensole to talk to friends about the incident. His friends were actually impressed and actually believed him. The local and national French police, which the national police is kind of like their air force and, and army and all that, they would soon get word of the incident and come to investigate the site. I wrote it here um, just because I couldn't get more information about it, but there is a unit of the French uh, agency, uh, CNES, which is kind of like their space agency. Yeah. And it's called GPAN. Now, GPAN would later go to these sites and actually do some testing and stuff like that, but the information I found was contradictory or didn't add up uh, in a lot of areas, and I don't know if that was a translation error or just me failing to find the appropriate facts. I mean, Again, I don't speak French. Yeah. So the biggest thing was we have specialists who claim to have gone out there. We actually have pictures, documented evidence of these, you know, specialists going out there. Exactly who the specialists were, I couldn't tell you. But long story short, there there's enough people saying like like no, like actual space agency specialists went out there to document this. The reason I say that there's a big discrepancy is because GPAN wasn't formed until nineteen seventy seven. This incident happened in 1965. Mm. That was 12 years later. So had there existed a previous agency before that, okay, great. If they were the ones who investigated, of course, there were still specialists out there. 
Yeah. That's the fact I want to be known. But I couldn't tell you what they were. It's just a lot of evidence I read referenced G-Pan. I'm like... And that, that wouldn't make up. any sense because... No, it wouldn't yeah. make any sense for an agency that won't exist for 12 years to come and investigate a site that happens. You yeah. Know? That's, that's some good investigation on your side. You know me? I, I try to get the, the good facts. Yeah. You know? I, I just... I wanted to put that little caveat in there. I yeah. know for fact specialists came out there. I couldn't tell you who they were. Like I said, when the ground was tested, they found that it was, like, harder uh, than the surrounding areas and covered in calcium deposits. So, much like we saw with the fused, you know, sands, you know, we have a harder surface in the area of the supposed site. Um, of course, we didn't, I couldn't find any information about calcium deposits in the Lonnie Zamora case, but we do have them here, which is something very notable to the farm, you know, the farm and agriculture you want a specific ratio of these nutrients to put into the ground. You know, calcium is a big factor in some of these. Stuff like phosphorus and nitrogen, carbon, all these are big factors in a plant's growth. I, I think uh, too much calcium is actually detrimental. So to find such large concentrations in this one area is very concerning and something not akin to what a farmer would have. The lavenders, uh, I put 9 meter radius, but it's actually a 9 foot radius of the site would fail to grow for some time after the event and even whenever it was examined they found changes at the cellular level now again lavenders would continue to grow but they were, were they weren't the same you know in, in this area and it was forever scarred by this uh by this uh incident wow. eventually mass would be shown a file by an investigator who uh which carried contents and facts and pictures and details of the Lonnie Zamora case when shown the sketch of the vessel, Mass was notably relieved knowing somebody else had seen the, the same shit. He was, he was one of those people, too, who was like, give me something. Like, he wasn't concerned like Zamora was, but he was certainly dumbfounded. I'm, I'm so, sure it must feel great to know that you're not crazy. To you know, know that somebody else is out there is like, they've seen my shit. Yeah. They've seen this. They know what's up. I'm not the only one. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and so I'm going to leave you with just a little bit more information and get into a bit more about the theories. You know, so like I said, with, with uh, Zamora, there's often an argument that at least with uh, the Zamora case, uh, given the location, the overall size and shape of the craft, that it theoretically could have been a U.S. lunar module. Of course. That's one of the first thoughts I had when researching this case. You know, I was reading the dimensions of this, you know, four prongs and everything. You look back to very famous footage of, you know, the lunar uh, lander, Neil Armstrong. You could fit that description. Just put a more, you know, roundish shell on it, and that's almost perfect to what we're talking about here. But here's a problem with that. Even with government project sites and stuff like that, all the craft and everything that they test has U.S. insignias all over it. So we it would is, know. We would know 100%. We would not cover that. Yeah. Because, say, like, and we'll probably cover this in a future episode, there was a, uh, a stealth bomber that crashed. Uh, the only stealth bomber that crashed, the, I believe, a B-52. Um, it still, even if it's painted black, it still has stuff like United States Air Force on it. It still has the U.S. flag in it. You know, we know what this is. The problem is, with this, there is no such markings. And stuff like Lonnie would be looking for. Stuff that Lonnie would be looking for and asking, like, oh yeah, no, that's the United States military doing tests. I don't have to worry. But he, there was none of that. And this comes from Army Captain Richard T. Holder, who was the, you know, the upper range commander of the White Sands Testing Range. 
very famous testing range where they drop nukes. He went to the site by himself at first, and then he brought some other people, I believe, uh, and actually talked to Zamora. And even when Zamora asked questions about it being a secret government project or some test of some sort, Holder had denied that the U.S. had any such projects at the time and also were not running any tests that day. He, the guy in charge of these testing sites, said, no, there is nothing going on right today. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, yeah, and it's not crazy, but it's just, it's surprising that they're just like, yeah, no, this couldn't be it. Obviously, it had to be something else, you know. Exactly. You know, and so the, the, the one guy you would count on to debunk this says, no, we can't. Yeah. The one guy you would hold responsible for all your conspiracy nonsense said, nah, I, I got nothing for you, bro. And, you know, the aftermath with, with the Maurice Math case, he would cite the event as having an almost spiritual impact. And he actually revered the spot of the craft where it landed as almost kind of like a spiritual hallmarker. Wow. Um, there still exists an unknown detail that Mass refused to tell even his wife but has noted feeling the entities did communicate with him in some way on that day. Ooh. And that is the facts of these cases. That is the Lonnie Zamora and Maurice Mass incident. All right, so of course, we just got done with the bulk of the main episode's information. It's time to tell you that, of course, you were wrong about the two truths and a lie. Because Maurice Mass's family didn't think that he was insane. They, they fully believed him. They fully trusted what he said. It didn't take the officials to, to have them believe him. The one that you thought was wrong, you know, about how Samora Mass would claim to witness nearly identical sightings. Obviously, now that we've gone through the facts, you can see just how true that was. Yeah. The same egg-shaped pod, the same roughly close-looking aliens, um, with, with some exceptions to certain details nearly identical yeah which is very surprising but uh the descriptions of said ships both of them being so similar to literally every other description i like, like i said this is like it's ingrained in our in our mind in our pop culture i'm aware and it's one of those things that it's easy to fall back on whenever you really have a, a cultural bias to that but the, this happened before that cultural bias was, you know, made. This isn't a story that came out in 2017 or something. Mm -hmm. This happened back in 1964 and 1965. And they also didn't have the speed of connectivity like we do with the internet. These stories don't travel at, the, at light speed. Those stories took time to get across the ocean and, and to talk to people and to get them aware of what's going on. Which is why I think them being so separated, so uh, these two very separate incidents from two very different people who probably had no reason to lie about it. Well, it's not only that they have no incentive to lie, they didn't even know each other. Mm -hmm. there, there was no connection to each other. Lonnie Zamora was a policeman in New Mexico. He was a very diligent man who was dutiful to his church, his people, and, and his job. Maurice Mass was just a, a, a humble lavender farmer in the perfume industry. You know, he's a simple man with, you know, simple goals in life. And, and to have both of these people, again, with, the, with their backgrounds, no incentive to lie, no way to communicate to each other. And they wouldn't gain anything from there's, it. Exactly. There's nothing to gain. You know, like what going back to our Hopkinsville episode, how a lot of people were claiming that, that, the, that the families made up these events to publish books or whatever about it. They claimed and blamed them to, as creating an event to, to profit off of it. But as soon as those claims were made, even the, the Sutton family, 
they stopped giving interviews yeah. because they believed that the, the the news reports were there to document the case, not to profit off their incident. Yeah. By the way, I really don't. Not just that they wouldn't gain anything from it, but also it's very brave of them to to be very open about this because it could be detrimental to to their careers. I mean, it often is in some I, in some people's cases. I mean, think about it. You're like a police officer, right? And somebody's like, "Oh, what you saw? What now?" Should he even have that badge? Like, obviously, this man's crazy. Or, or the perfume dude. Do I want to buy perfume from the dude who, like, is obviously smoking something? I don't know. Right? Like, like know? it just it doesn't make sense. Yeah. There's a lot of things that just doesn't add up. So for them to go out and actually claim them, it forces you to confront the idea of, what if they're right? Yeah. Of course, a skeptic will never do that. And a, and a skeptic through and through who refuses to, to accept possibilities... Um, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being skeptic. I like to consider myself an open-minded skeptic. But those who hold so fast to what's known often alienate themselves from what's possible. That, that's how I see things. And so to have cases like this that push the envelope so far and give you no reason to doubt, no legitimate reason to doubt, let me specify, you, you are confronted with an option, deny or accept. You know, like I said, you know, enough people say, oh, these aren't very similar. They could have their own things. Well, like, let's take the green suits, for example, like I was talking about. Yes, Maurice Mass saw them in a green one-piece suit. It's not, you can't say that Lonnie Zamora did not witness beings in green suits. All you can say is that he did not see it. Why? His green tinted sunglasses are what I'm going to want to point to. You put on, you know, green shades, you're going to have a lot harder time discerning what's green and what's not green. Also, different times today. There's different colors that exactly. you probably didn't see it quite as well as the other dude. You know, this is, you know, He's in the a- afternoon for Zamora, this is crack of dawn for, for Mass. So, yeah, lighting could change. I mean, and on top of that, like, these are freaking aliens. What do we know about them? Exactly. Like, to it, assume we know anything already assumes too much. Yeah, it's like, how do we not know that they don't wear, like, green suits on Sundays? Like, you know? How do we know that their suits don't contain some chemical that changes color to react to their environment to make it better for them? I don't know. Yeah, like... I don't know. We really don't. It's just, it, it's wild. The aliens are one of those things that, like, it, it's so fascinating. I love to talk about it. I love to research it more. But it truly is a bigger unknown. Even past, you know, if you believe, you know, in, like, ghosts and stuff like that. Or cryptids. Yeah. That stuff is an unknown. But they exist here. We know the ideas, or at least the legends and everything, exist here. Aliens are one of those things that are terrifying because they don't exist here. They are foreign. And it's so mysterious because it, it's so odd. You would feel like something this big would already be openly known to the public. And it isn't. The mm-hmm. only reason we know anything about all this is because of these encounters that people have. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's insane. And then, of course, like I said, if we go back to, you know, when you confronted with the truth, you're faced with two options, accept or deny. And what do people often do? They deny, deny, deny because it's uncomfortable to accept the possibility. It is uncomfortable to accept that we are not alone out there. Or at least accept the possibility, should I say, that we're not alone out there. Like I said, my, my opinion sold. In cases like this, where there is no evidence to refute, when there is no evidence to truly, you know, stick a nail in this coffin and say it's done, I am forced with the same choice and I choose to accept. I accept that there are beings out there because that's what the truth tells me. That's what the evidence tells me. You can make up your own opinion. You're a grown adult, just like everyone else. But that's where I stick. Yeah. You know, just, just, just to say. 
Yeah. I, I feel like denying that aliens exist is sadder, if anything, because it's like denying that, that, like, wait, is this it? Like, is this about as big as the universe gets, you know? Yeah. Like, no, there has to be, like, in, we know, like, mathematically, there has to be another planet out there that can, you know, inhabit intelligent life. Yeah, going back to the Drake equation and everything, you know, that the, the probability of a universe or a galaxy or whatever being able to host life and then we also have the Fermi paradox, which is you know explaining that even with the Drake equation, we also have to look at the probability of what it took for life to for us to start naturally, you know. And, and on terms of scale, these are on the opposite ends. Yeah. So it, it's one of those things. Is like I think because of its nature and that they're on on opposing ends, it is more likely to believe that at least some exist, but a variety exists on a span of of an evolutionary scale. Maybe there is alien plants that live on another universe or another planet, but that's just it. They're nothing but plants, much like uh, much like scientists believe that the Earth was, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. Maybe there are uh, species that exist out there that are so intelligent, uh, they are far beyond our capability, much like what we're seeing here. They would have to be in order to make it this far to, to study us. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to tell for sure. So in my in my opinion, like I said, it's just it's impossible to, to make a conclusive argument. You know, you you can't say yes or no definitively based on assumption. You have to have evidence and you have to have details and proofs and reasonable thought processes that bring you to this point. It's just it, it's wild. Like of course, I've never had a UFO encounter or anything like that. I think it would be almost like mass, where it's, it would be like a spiritual encounter for me. Yeah, you know, but I wouldn't say it, it's uh, it's necessarily impossible. You know, as I'm talking, I'm, I'm reminded of the the lead mass case of Ventane Hill that we covered a, a few months ago, where these guys, you know, believe that they were talking to aliens, and in a sense, you know, we're talking to them as spiritual scientists. You know, creating all kinds of new devices that's trying to talk to these guys, you know, because they wholeheartedly, as, as I can assume, believed in these guys and needed to get information about them or talk to them or communicate or accelerate uh, humanity to this new point. But talking about, you know, accelerating humanity and stuff, that, that's, that's a lot of conversation about, you know, industrial revolutions and stuff that's probably better for another episode. But, like... I've even, like, now I've even shown you, you know, images of what these concept sketches were, of what these guys claim to see, and with what you've seen, give me some opinions on that. I I think the simple fact that it looks so otherworldly, it's so strange and bizarre and surreal, you know? It's a weird egg with a bunch of legs on it, like, and it's it's metallic and aluminum. I don't think, and, and... also, these two people from different parts of the world kind of... Are you going to tell me that they both came up with almost the exact same concept? Um, no, no, no. I, it has to be true. I, I, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say it. It could be fake. There is a possibility. There always is. Yes, I'll, I'll accept that. But, I'll accept that argument. But I feel like it's so bizarre. It, it's almost like if, it, if somebody came up of an alien spacecraft. Let's say they've never seen one before. Let's say this guy has never heard of it before. This is the first time they ever heard the concept of, of a UFO, of an alien, right? And they were like, okay, what do you think these space people 
would would ride? What what would their ship look like? And if this person's only knowledge was like, oh well, I've seen what a plane looks like. It kind of probably kind of looks like a plane. This thing doesn't have any fucking wings. I I don't know. I'm, I'm just looking at it from like a there's I I just I feel it. I just feel. It well, w- it's also here. Here's another uh, argument. Okay, yes, I believe that anything is theoretically possible. But the conditions to make such things happen verge on such a near-zero impossibility, it's safe to assume it's, you know, for for argument's sake, you can just debunk that idea. You know, with stuff like this, yes, okay, let's say somebody had the money to put together an aluminum craft structure Mm -hmm. and had the money to retrofit some engine he built to, to, to pull this off or whatever, and then he gets his kid dressed up and whatever... Out in the middle of the fucking desert where nobody's like, no, at. It's ridiculous. Out in somebody's lavender field where, you know, you have no business being. Like, why? It's, it's it, like, the only thing that would make sense would be aliens. Exactly. it's so strange and out there. And, like I said, it's a freaking ball. Like, how did it fly? Our little, tiny human brains can't comprehend how things can fly without wings or propellers. Like... And that's why I think it's real because I don't doesn't it doesn't make any sense. There, there's more there's there's more credibility for than against in mm-hmm. this. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I do think sometimes when things go a little weird and things get really bizarre and strange and unexplainable, like okay, maybe there is an explanation that I just didn't think about, or maybe it's weird for a reason, and I just have to accept the fact that there are things I will never understand in this universe, and aliens might be one of them. Like. It's just one of those things that probably not in our lifetime, but maybe in the next. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe it will take ten more generations before you know our governments of the world finally was like, yeah, no, there's aliens. We're gonna interact and talk to them and govern with them. I would like love that. it. I, I would just love it if, if if the government was just like, hey, yeah, yeah. So we've been keeping the secret for a few hundred something years. Well, didn't they kind of already do that this year? Whenever yeah, they acknowledged yeah. um, what was it? Three videos that came out. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, who leaked like, it? It was like the the guy from Blink One Eighty Two. No, 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 no. This was like the U.S. intelligence department or something that came out and acknowledged. Oh these yeah, videos. but the original video source was no, no, no. Because I, I know what you're talking about, and those are two different sets of videos. Okay, gotcha. Um, no, because these were videos that hadn't been seen before that they, that the government released. I, I did see those videos, and it is it is very weird. And they also didn't say. They didn't say this is a uh, military experiment. They were just like, we don't get it. Check it out. Right? Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> it, it's just wild. And, you know, I, as I was covering this, I wanted to cover, like, more encounters of the third kind. But these two, for obvious reasons, stuck out. Because these are two different people that witnessed the same thing almost verbatim. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's just, it just blows your mind, you know, to, to think not only what technology did they have... You know, because for me, that, that that tells me with everything that they're doing, assuming because I do believe that aliens are real, they're truly here and they're truly here, you know, interacting with our planet, that certain technologies are definitely possible. So that, in a weird way, this goes back to, you know, thoughts that I have about, uh, you know, human advancement technology, the third industrial revolution as a whole and everything. And it's just like... Knowing these technologies are possible encourages me, in a, in a weird way, to want to be a better person and just be more knowledgeable. Because if I'm having to force myself to be more knowledgeable about the possibilities of aliens here, 
I got to be more knowledgeable about the possibilities of things we can do now for us to get us to that point. It, it, it's it's a kind of a, a weird self-feeding cycle, but I, I think you, you, you see what I'm getting at. Yeah, I do. Uh, it's just, I don't know, in a weird way, these stories give me hope, you know, is what it boils down to. Um, because yeah. we're still, it's still 2020. We still got a lot going on and we will cover more of that into our, uh, updates and, and corrections segments. But, uh, for now, you know, I think this about covers everything, uh, everything that we've been looking into. You know, I think this covers a lot of the, you know, general opinions that I've had. I think this gives enough people something to, to think about, you know, and long story short, I just hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Yeah, you know? me too. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I like aliens. I like learning about UFOs and shit. <laughs> I would love to do more topics like this. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, we got to space that out a little. We got to put in some some uh, other stuff, some here Greek there, mythology, a little, little, little bit of Greek mythology, a little bit of street crime, you know. Um, but I'm really enjoying these kind of topics. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, you know me. I do try to find some fun ones and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so speaking of which, I you know have about four more episodes, more or less ready. Because as the time of recording, I know we're going to record a, a very different one uh, tomorrow. Okay. Uh, but I hopefully it's just as much fun, or it's just as much like, you know, fascination behind it. Um, but yeah, without you know giving any spoilers, you know, it's it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting, and it's going to be an outlook into you know kind of different culture uh, on this planet and how people see things. Sounds awesome. Uh, but yeah, that, that that's it for today. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed, and we can't wait to see you guys back next week. Without further ado, we're going to go ahead and head out. Later. Later. Bye.